Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Jerndaisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The Nun 2. Because we're taking it all the way back to our second episode. Mm -hmm. It's the episode that is responsible for us saying the word visions the way we do occasionally. <laughs> like a, a perhaps our most long-lived verbal tick on the podcast. Well, yeah, it would just about have to be. And this is about as far back in the podcast as we can go for a sequel, because God knows there was never any chance in hell that Slender Man was getting one. So, yeah, The Nun 2. It's a sequel to 2018's The Nun. And the first movie was not very good, and we made that clear at the time. And I think this is worse. Or at least less fun. Yeah, I don't know. It's defining characteristic is that it is put in the awkward position of bringing back characters from the previous movie who I do not remember and have no fondness for. Oh, uh, it's Frenchie! Yeah. <laughs> when the thankless sidekick character said, who is this Frenchie guy? I was like, I, I'm... All right, finally, somebody's speaking my language. Thank you. Yeah, I had literally zero recollection of Frenchie. Yeah. Uh, all I remembered from the original film, The Nun, was that there was a priest and a nun and then a convent full of other nuns and then the demon nun. That's really all I remembered. I didn't remember this other guy. Well, is it, uh, I don't know how her first name is pronounced, but the, the other Farmiga, I remembered being in the original only because it introduced this quandary where I, through the whole movie, was thinking like, okay, is she or is she not related to, what's her name from the Conjuring movies? Vera Farmiga, yeah. The, right. Well, you know, no, but I, I'm blanking. I wanted to say Elizabeth Warren, which I know is Warren. Oh, right. Um, uh, Lorraine Warren. Yeah, thank you, Lorraine Warren. Is there connective tissue here? Is there not? I assume not. Because it would have we're two movies deep, and I think it would have come up by now. And it turns out she has a, a different lineage that this movie makes much ado over. But yeah, I mean, the characters come back who I thought were being introduced for the first time. The one guy in the first movie who had a memorable enough presence—he's the guy who says visions—does <laughs> <laughs> uh, not come back. He got killed off. He got poochied between movies. <laughs> Poochie got cholera on the way back to his home planet. <laughs> yeah, most unceremonious. Didn't even go down fighting a demon or anything cool, you know? Just... No, just out doing missionary work, presumably, somewhere underdeveloped and picked up the old cholera. You know, yeah. it makes me wonder whether they just couldn't get the actor back or whether it was always the plan to just cut him loose and make this a Farmiga-only show? I, I don't really know. I mean, him, the the nature of his poochieing rings, it, it, it smacks of long-running horror franchises of the 80s when, like, every slasher series would get a double-digit number of installments and it just got totally ridiculous and protagonists <laughs> routinely had to get written out or immediately killed off in the prologue of the next movie. And it was, it was very, just take them out behind the shed most of the time. That's how this felt. So I, I, I have a feeling that he just didn't want to come back or there was a scheduling conflict or something because it all seems, uh, the, the way it's explained, the way it's hand-waved away is, is a tad hasty. And it's a shame because the movie is very lean, but not really short. I mean, it's not especially long. Mm -hmm. The length of it isn't gratuitous or anything, but it's... I would be less inclined to call it lean and more inclined to call it thin. <laughs> or, yeah, slight is, yeah, thin. And it, it, it's just boring as sin and and, and when we can talk about this more after the break and i'm sure we will i have i have precious little to say about this movie so i don't want to front load too much of it but basically in addition to the problem i already described which is that it depends upon you 
remembering and or giving a shit about the events of this very forgettable movie from five years ago, Mm -hmm. incredibly. In addition to that issue, the other problem that I kept having is that the movie alternates scares and exposition, which is how these movies work. And it's not that structure I take issue with, the A, B, A, B, switching back and forth, left foot, right foot, that's fine. Uh, It's just that the scares are so perfunctory that when the dialogue scenes come up, you're getting these little lore tidbits about the nun, actually a demon named Valak or Valak. I can't, I've already forgotten. Well, here's the the funny thing. Or fallen angel, as the case may be. Well, right, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, (laughs) Valak, I, I think, is the name. But here's the thing, they never use that name in this installment oh that makes me feel better for being iffy on the pronunciation i was (laughs) yeah no that that was that was purely a a nun one (laughs) tidbit that yeah they just didn't bother to which is bizarre because this movie has in its dialogue scenes an expository bent shall we say you know (laughs) we learn we learn more about the antagonist the demon we learn more about all kinds of stuff that comes into play in the third act, which we'll get into in the plot rundown. And every dialogue scene, every exposition scene, just feels terribly conspicuous because the scares aren't doing. You know, you, you can you can, that that stuff can roll right off your back if the scares are working for you. But if the scares aren't working for you, and then you get this kind of leaden exposition scene, and then you get another scare that does nothing for you, it just becomes a succession of just farts in the wind, you know? <laughs> they, they just, there's this very immaterial thing. I, I mean, I'm, I'm as long-winded as ever. I can go on and on, but I really do have frighteningly little to say about this one. And I, I'm going to endeavor to not just say what I just said. Over and over. <laughs> in in yeah. endless variations over and over, yeah. Yeah, I get it. And it's a shame, too, because the first movie we just had so many stupid little things to comment on that the episode ran long, at least by our standards of, of those days. Yeah. Yeah. I I, don't know uh, where we're going to end up here. I still remember the sight gag from the nun one where, I mean, this sounds like a Monty Python sketch as I'm remembering (laughs) it and describing it. But for some reason, there's a, there's like a kind of a, I don't know if you'd call him a slapstick character, but he's a kind of a sidekick comic relief character He's running through the woods or some misty outdoor crypt-like setting with just a gigantic cross in tow for some reason, like a, a cross practically as tall as he is. And then he finds his way to a tavern and then it cuts to him like slumped over at the bar, head in his hands with the cross propped up beside him <laughs> by the bar stool. Uh, I remember yucking it up over that a totally context-free memory i don't know who he was what role he had to play in the movie why he was lugging that big ass cross around <laughs> but the movie the first one was not without its fun moments or moments that were easy to make fun of and yeah the new one just has has none of that it was directed by our erstwhile enemy Michael Chavez, who did, what did he do more recently? He did Devil Made Me Do It. I think still the most recent Conjuring movie, unless I'm forgetting one. Yeah, no, it is. And I forgot he did uh, that. And before that, what really got him in our crosshairs was the La Llorona movie, which was also fairly far back in our back catalog. Uh, Not as far back as The Nun, but... Somewhere in the teens, I think. Yeah, thereabouts. So he's just, he's 0 for 3, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, he's well on his way to uh, William Brent Bell, Jeff Wadlow, Adam Robitel status. Yeah, I mean, I feel like our our, our Mount Rushmore of, of bad horror directors got cemented pretty early on, and we've just never <laughs> deviated from it or uh, or made room for any fresh blood. But And we could use a fourth horseman and a, a fourth head Yeah, bad horror director Mount Rushmore, so, you know. Maybe not yet, but uh, one more shitty movie in this universe. Yeah, and that's probably the, the latest inductee. And for the time being, we'll, we can maybe consider him a novitiate. <laughs> <laughs> How pointed. Yes. Um, so 
just a, a quick sum up before we launch into the rundown. In the original film, The Nun, there is a demon, as Matt pointed out, named Valak, who takes the form of a spooky nun who is sort of haunting slash cursing whatever the fucking lingo is. They always always seems to be a moving target, a convent in Romania. And priest comes and I forget, was the younger Farmiga already there or did she come with the priest? I, I think don't even that the remember. priest, the sidekick that I was describing before, the weird man-sized cross interlude, I think the priest, the main guy, who succumbed to cholera between installments, he and that character show up at the haunted convent, and Tysa Fermiga is already there, uh, okay. to the best of my recollection. And now she has moved up in the world. She is now the one doing his work, basically, being dispatched on holy missions when there's conjuring fuckery afoot. Well, really just one. She's been hiding out at this other convent in France, and then, like, a cardinal shows up at some point and says, yep, Father Burke's dead. Uh, You gotta go. The church Mm -hmm. needs you. And she doesn't want to, and then she does it anyway. But yeah, basically, in classic one-verse conjuring-verse fashion, the first film ends with the enemy, the entity, appearing to be vanquished and then you know it's back and i guess that's not unusual in horror but it just it seems so stupid in this context because these movies are all about the power of love and the power of faith and they're so fucking catholic that (laughs) you know you would think that if they have successfully performed some kind of christian right to banish a demon that it would just work and that it would, stay yeah, fucking stick the landing working. Well, and, and the pro- it, it never it does. Both, it cuts both ways too because it makes. First of all, it's a hard sell to begin with uh, for you and for I and for I suspect a decent number of other folks that love and faith come to save the day every time. It's a, a little god fearing and a little wholesome for what these movies are trying to be. But that might have something to do with their mass market appeal. I don't know, but it, it does make love and faith seem like fairly ineffectual weapons that they just have to keep playing whack-a-mole with these fucking demons you know it should be one and done if the good lord is actually on their side and the other issue which i actually find even more troubling is that it makes the demons just seem like team rocket you know because they're like they're 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 bested very decisively every time but not so decisively that there is just the one encounter, you know? It's like mm-hmm. every time they get trounced, but for some reason they have to get trounced over and over again. So it's it just, it makes both sides seem very wimpy, in, yeah. you know, in, in a way that, that that's, it's hard to root for anybody. I mean, I guess I'm rooting for the side of love and justice and etc. But you know, I don't know. I, that neither of them are uh, making a very strong showing for themselves. We open in France in 1956, if memory serves, and there's a decent little pre-title drop prologue shown mostly from the perspective of an altar boy or something, a, a, a young yeah, kid. Yeah, altar boy. And the opening shot is very like would be third man it's just missing the dutch angle the kids like sort of traipsing down this foggy cobblestone street kicking a ball ahead of him and then he comes into this church and there's an elderly priest there who is gently admonishing him and he goes into the basement to either retrieve or put away some of the uh fuck me the special wine what do they call it communion the the communion wine And this is the only planting and payoff that I like because the communion wine plays a role in the climax and it being Chekhov way up front is actually pretty inconspicuous. All of the other, you know, seeds planted. Yeah, I'll be honest, it it didn't even occur to me. So yeah, points for it. So I I like this little prologue on the whole because it it taps into that. It, It helps that it's from a little kid's perspective. These movies are so hokey and cartoonish the way evil is depicted that, frankly, the protagonist's age should be skewing younger. <laughs> you almost can't go too young for my liking. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, not the only reason 
that the first of the two recent it movies was a lot better than the second one but it didn't hurt right. that the that the protagonists were all middle schoolers or thereabouts anyway it taps into that little kid fear of the basement he gets a little spooked putting the communion wine away and then he runs back up to ground level and tells the priest that he saw something and he's freaked out and then there's a kind of eerie shot of uh you know just like a dark space in the the corner of the church and you're waiting for something to happen and really what you're waiting for is for something to come lunging out of the darkness because that's what always happens or maybe it'll come lunging from the left or the right or you know we've talked about this countless Ad times nauseum. yeah right they always try to fake you out and half the times the fake out is so obvious that you second guess it and it ends up in trying to subvert your expectations it plays right into them not so this time it keeps it kind of classy relatively speaking you just have a pair of white eyes sort of snapping open in the darkness and then things get a lot less classy we move very quickly into cgi pyrotechnics the priest gets lifted off the ground and set aflame this is also foreshadowing for the climax so so far, it's all relatively tidy. Title drop, and then we are introduced or reintroduced to characters that are going to play a more prominent role in this story. Half the time, you don't know right away whether they're being introduced or reintroduced. At least I did. <laughs> yeah. So uh, things run parallel for a while. You've got Frenchie, or uh, Maurice, I think is his actual name, mm -hmm. and he is like a janitor or a yard worker at this orphanage or girls' school or something. And he's got sort of a paternal thing, a burgeoning friendship with one of the students, one of the little girls, and a maybe romance happening with one of the, the tutors. And then you've got the Farmiga plot which is about her being shown this uh it kicks off with her kind of being shown this dossier of all of these valic related fatal mishaps where you know in this convent such and such grisly thing occurred there was a hanging there was a burning this that and the other we need you to go round to with this demon this it's, is all it's around this time she has a nightmare vision of Maurice doing something spooky. And at this point, because I didn't have any investment of these characters from five years ago, I was like, wait, does she know him? Like, yeah, what's the deal? I th aren't they in different places? What's going on? And then, yeah, you know, we find out that Frenchie is, in fact, our beloved <laughs> <laughs> secondary protagonist from... The Nun 2018. I'd be curious. I mean, I don't really have any interest in revisiting The Nun 2018, but I'd be curious to at least go back and double check whether sec I think secondary protagonist might even be overinflating. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, you've got the priest, you've got Tessa Farmiga, you've got the guy with the cross who I remember at all, which means I remember him more than Frenchie, <laughs> even if it's just that one, that one sight gag. Uh, I have a feeling that he is, at best, the fourth most important character, or the fourth most important protagonist, I should say, because obviously the nun is the main draw, more important than any of them. But yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction. And then it takes a bizarrely long time for their paths to intersect. And just geographically, where they are in relation to one another, I experienced that same murkiness that you're describing. Took so, a, a really long time for that feeling to dissipate. If, for the original film, Frenchie has third billing. Okay. It's Father Burke, Sister Irene, that's Tysa Farmiga, and then Frenchie, and then the woman who plays the nun. <laughs> I mean, she deserves top billing whether she gets it or not, but in any case, yeah, he's... he's Six, well, sixth right. and seventh billed are Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> 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 these fucking movies man well and i i guess to the filmmaker's credit this time around they don't actually expect you to remember any of this because for one thing what is her actual name irene yeah irene has a new buddy 
that she can explain things to. Her name's <laughs> Deborah. Right. And uh, and so that helps to jog our memories a little bit, or at least it's designed to. And we also get periodic nano flashbacks from the first movie where they'll repurpose footage just to give us something to go, oh, yeah, I, okay. <laughs> you know, there when Frenchie's name comes up and Deborah's like, oh, who is this Frenchie guy? Again, echoing my exact sentiment. Uh, <laughs> Irene is like, he he saved me. He came back for me. And there's, you know, a, a two to five second long shot from the original movie of him coming to her rescue in some dank crypt you know, <laughs> that I only half remember. And, you know, she's trying to sell that bond, that emotion, the actress is. But it's just so not there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's like, I don't know, it'd be like if Fast Five tried to do the we got to get the band together thing, but it was the second installment and there were like five years had elapsed between the first installment and the second one coming out. It's, it's just that you have not put in the legwork to create this goodwill, this pathos, this this familia thing that you're trying to create. It's funny you should mention that because I saw Fast Five first. I hadn't seen any of those films prior okay. to seeing Fast Five. I went and saw it in the theaters the night they killed Osama bin Laden. <laughs> what a night to be an American. <laughs> I know. You, you must have come out just... <laughs> shitting apple pie <laughs> and, and screaming like sparklers coming out of your ears <laughs> uh, well I, I went back to campus and that's kind of that was the vibe yeah I, I, I yeah I was also on campus I remember yeah I remember it well anyway carry on yeah so when they bring um what's his name Vince back it was just kind of like who the fuck is this guy and then you know come to find out he was only in the first one yeah. But it does work when you've seen all of the prior four films to prove your point. It is effective once you have the context as opposed to, yeah, one movie five years prior to the other. And the, the absence of Captain Visions is made more conspicuous by all of the, you know, by this big show of affection. He saved me. He came back, you know, blah, blah, blah. If this, this movie were actually getting the band back together, that would be one thing, but the guy that we're more likely to remember couldn't be bothered or had better things to do. So we have right. to foist all of that affection onto this nobody who spends most of this movie when he's not being cute with the little kid or being cute with the uh, tutor character, or the instructor. He is uh, he's possessed basically. He is responsible i mean it's not his fault but he, he is valak's vessel there's a, another nano flashback to i assume a shot from the first movie where the demon does something right out of the conjuring playbook and pukes a bunch of black ichor into his mouth or maybe it's like a slimy tendril uh it's blinking you miss it but anyway he's got some demon in him and that's why there's been this warpath being wrought across you know, Europe. Across Europe. Yeah, no, yeah, he's basically the nun's meat puppet Uber right. across Eastern and then into Western Europe. Yes, a satanic valet of sorts, unwittingly uh, smuggling the demon here and there. So in addition to that exposition, we get exposition to do with the church where most of the movie plays out, Irene and Deborah are sent there. There's a stained glass window that's rather nicely done, assuming it was a mock-up made for the movie. I think it is because they refer to specific elements of it, and it's it's pretty. There's a goat in the middle who looks kind of cute, and they, they try to make him out to be very sinister, you know, that when, when the setting sun, when the light of the sun is filtered through the window... The goat's eyes shine red and ooh, but it's, you know, I, I don't know. I've never, I feel like no one since the 1500s has been sincerely afraid of goats, you know, in terms of <laughs> actually, in terms of them actually having these sort of satanic connotations, you know what I mean? Right. It'd be one thing if it was a gargoyle or some kind of terrible winged something or other, but it's just, you know, it's just, just a guy. It's not even a black goat, it's a, it's a white goat. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, Robert Akers knew better, I guess. Um, <laughs> let's see. We are treated to, you know, just a, a, another exposition dump to do with a saint who was martyred sometime back. She was set aflame, but did not burn. She survived the conflagration. And this comes into play in the climax. This is we are we are now well into the stretch of the movie where all of the planting and payoff is like nailed on a chalkboard to me. And the scares <laughs> are I've all have already fled my mind with one exception, which is not scary, but is at least novel. If anything, it's a little too creative for its own good. Irene is standing by a kiosk or like a like a window display of magazines. Yeah, and this this the, one's the in the pages, trailer. The pages all start... I must not have seen that trailer because it was new to me. The pages all start turning, and they turn in such a way that they keep producing... It's hard to even describe. In the center of the rack, the magazine pages keep, with like one page turn after another, they keep conspiring to produce these humanoid shapes. It'll be like the magazine on the left will have the left side of a person's face and the magazine on the right will have the right half of a person's face. And it's just this collage-like kind of effect. And it just, it goes on for a long time and eventually settles on a nun shape. But the face of the nun is like a crag. It's really kind of, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of laugh out loud funny when it settles on that. Because obviously you're expecting the nun to cohere out of all of this page flapping. But when it does, it only kind of does, and it's just a cliffside that sort of looks like the nun's face. It's like when people see Jesus and they're burnt toast. It's like, (laughs) yeah, if if you squint a little. uh, And then I thought that this scene was going to try to do some of that sleight of hand I was describing a little while ago, the the fake-out. But it doesn't. Irene looks over her shoulder like she heard something. It pans to the left. Right, for a long time. Very laboriously. Yeah, nothing happens for a while. And then finally, when she's kind of looking back in the direction of the magazine rack, the nun just sort of blinks into existence in front of its silhouette and then grabs her by the throat or whatever. Right, right where you're expecting it to show up. So maybe the 5D chess has advanced to a point where they know that we're second-guessing them. And so they just do it the predictable way but that's not i don't know or or michael chavez is just a hack i'm not sure which in fact actually i retract that i am pretty sure but points for creativity anyway even if the overall effect is not so much scary as like mid-2000s music video you know you expect the faces (laughs) being formed by the magazine pages to like start singing a u2 song or something like that it just doesn't (laughs) it, it doesn't really make your spine tingle the movie just plods on and on we are eventually reunited with beloved fan favorite character frenchy and he is super duper possessed and we get the kind of interminable climax that these movies are known for (laughs) where it plays out in multiple stages you get a couple false victories sprinkled in there and I've skipped over some stuff. I've skipped over. There's this sort of would-be well-of-the-souls moment where they use the sunlight coming through the stained glass goat to show them. Create a laser pointer that would be fit for a cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, exactly. Just this, just this red beam. And it points to the eyes of the woman who was set aflame but survived the martyred saint because after they set her aflame they proceeded to gouge out her eyes when she survived the burning that's why her eyes are are sacred and apparently valak the nun demon slash fallen angel according to papal librarian what's his name i don't think they even gave him a name frankly we glossed over all that the nun wants these eyes because it thinks that it's a very powerful artifact, and so that'll give it the power to... I don't know what exactly. We never really get there. There's no indication as to what exactly the demon wants other than to have its 
Pow, I guess there's some talk that it's been going around killing or trying to kill the descendants of this saint. Spoiler alert, one of whom is Tysa Farmiga. Yeah. But that all seems to be just in service of getting this artifact. So yeah, the the end goal, other than just the accumulation of more power, maybe that's the point. That's all demons want in this universe. The motivation, the ultimate motivation, is not really clear. Well, this is why, because the demon cannot do a lot of its own talking. And thank God for that, because whenever it opened its leathery black lips in the last movie... It said some dumb shit, like, looks like the village is missing its idiot. Do you remember <laughs> I forgot that? about I that. Well, I did not for some reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> insanely stupid. Uh, but that's why you you give them a human acolyte, like, so that they can do the pontificating on the demon's behalf. Like John Noble say in the last movie, the last Conjuring movie that this guy directed. Mm-hmm. He was sort of fun, sort of diverting. Except when he had chicken shit on. I, his I mean, that pants. was the apex of his performance and of that movie <laughs> and of Michael Chavez's filmography up to this point. So, <laughs> uh. yeah, I mean, the the climax is the usual hoopla, the usual song and dance. At one point, it looks like Frenchie has been sacrificed to kill the demon. You've got the, the little girl is there who he's been buddied up with and she's like no you're hurting him and uh, again you know it's like oh um, guess we better just stop the exorcism right <laughs> which you know so then the demon gains the upper hand and sets fire to irene in the same manner as in the prologue you know irene is lifted into the air bursts into flame aha does not die she is descended from saint lucy and then the heroes triumph finally, but again, definitively, but presumably not for the last time <laughs> in the manner of Team Rocket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the heroes emerge victorious because this is all playing out in sort of an arena of, of, of sorts ringed by kegs of communion wine. Uh, much of which is spilling out and flooding the place. Yeah, they're praying Irene and Deborah essentially to create a communion tsunami, which will right. drown the nun. Right, because well, I guess they're commuting it into the blood of Christ, and then right. the demon gets overlook hotel into <laughs> hell. <laughs> yes. A tidal wave of Christ blood just blinks it out of existence, which is kind of funny. I thought it was very funny. <laughs> it's just like, it's not just kegs are spilling out onto the floor and then like maybe some of that gets lifted up in the air or something. No, a bunch of kegs explode like they were rigged with C4 yeah. to set up this set piece. And it would have been better. And I feel like I'm invoking Roger Rabbit more and more in my dotage you know, as I get older <laughs> and crankier. It's becoming more of a, a gold standard for me. But Wicked Witch of the West or Judge Doom style, I would have liked to see the nun just melt into the communion pool. You know? Yeah. Drag it out a little. Let me see. Oh, what a world. What a world. Like, let's relish the moment of victory. But instead, kaboom, like you described. It's just Looney Tunes, which is fun in its own way. And that's it, basically. We don't get any indication, uh, unless it happened during the, you know, if there was like a mid-credits thing, then I missed that. But the epilogue, such as it is, is not much of anything. There's no indication, no tune-in-next-week kind of sequel hook, no sign that something is amiss. And I remember, I don't remember how the first Nun ended, but I know that it ended with a wink-wink at the audience. Like, uh uh-oh. Presumably it had something to do with Frenchie being possessed, but I, I know that, uh, it left the door open, and this one kind of doesn't. So there is a mid-credits scene, and it's just, it's the Warrens. It's the fucking Warrens. I'm not <laughs> kidding. <laughs> it's, Don't say. It's at their fucking house, and the phone rings, and Patrick Wilson picks up the phone. Yeah, puts down his guitar, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> this little light of mine. Oh, hold on. <laughs> hey <Hey-o. laughs> Um, 
and it's like that was father so and so he needs help with something it's oh like I, th- I think it's just archive footage from i don't know the end of the first conjuring movie or i don't know where it's i don't think it was freshly shot uh-huh and I don't even see what that's supposed to be doing in terms of, like, sequel hooking type stuff. It's just a, a reminder that they still exist. It's, it's just it's, like, it's, oh, it's, yeah, you know, the Warrens. And, like, hey, don't forget, the Warrens are from the 70s, so they can overlap with the events that happened in the 50s. It's not much separation, you know. Characters can overlap. That's the only thing I can think of, but to what end? Well, it's just, I yeah, I mean... To no end that I can see. I think it's just an assurance from the filmmakers to the audience. Like, don't worry, we haven't shut off the content spigot. You know, it's gonna keep it's gonna keep spewing these movies out as long as you keep paying for them. <laughs> uh, it, it's like I saw this meme recently on Twitter. It's like a John Carpenter's The Thing esque creature puddle amalgam of just like a bunch of pop culture figures and then it's captioned with something along the lines of i like recognizing things (laughs) and it's like that's what this is it's like oh hey it's the warrens from everyone's favorite james wan series the conjuring well i mean to invoke another Twitter meme that it is, I think, just a moment that's made to make you Leonardo DiCaprio out of your chair for a second and point at the screen. (laughs) Right. Yes. There it is. But again, this is different because the nun originated in The Conjuring 2. Like we we're aware of that connection if we've been watching all of these movies all this time. Right, yeah, exactly. This this isn't something new. Like I said, I don't even think it's a freshly shot. I think it's pure archive footage. But And and for the reasons you say, it it does not qualify as a crossover. I mean, Lord knows, it takes a pretty beefy, hefty crossover in this MCU-fatigued world to get people (laughs) excited. And this falls beneath the lowest possible standard for what a crossover should be because they originate from the same source. Basically, the only kind of crossover into another part of the James Wan universe that could have made me excited is if it cuts to the nun somehow emerging from the muck yet again and teaming up with Gabriel from Malignant. I was going to say, if like if the, if the nun had been banished back to hell and, you know, met Gabriel there and proposed a team up, we're not so different, you and I, or they had fought Freddy versus Jason style, I would have been hype as hell. But that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the only one. So, yeah, I guess we'll head to the break and then we'll pick it back up after that. Sophie, what happened? I think there's something here. That's not meant to be. What did you see? I saw none. Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. This thing, it's come back for me. This demon was once an angel. Rejected by God. Stripped of power. It wants that power back. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared too. You send that thing back to hell. 
And we're back. So, uh, I don't know if I'm having a problem with the theaters I'm going to, or if something is periodically wrong with my eyeballs, or if this really is part of the heinous trend in film and television these days of so many dark room or, or nighttime scenes just being insanely poorly lit, but huge swaths of the nun too were illegible for me and i I mean muddy at best yeah Uh, i always have to suspend a judgment on that because i watch most of these movies you know uh yeah cam riffs in 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 a piratical kind of way but so to me it's all fucking porridge visually speaking but yeah i can sometimes infer when a movie's cinematography is is on the soupy side and that appeared to be the case this time so i i again can't really weigh in on that but i'm not surprised that was your experience of it yeah because obviously i didn't watch the trailer for the nun immediately prior or the nun 2 immediately prior to watching the film itself but my recollection of how bright certain shots and scenes in the trailer were relative to when they came up in the film, I feel like it was a lot darker, so I might have just gotten shafted by my theater again. But I I remember, wasn't it Cobweb where I bitched about this? I believe so, yeah. I I think I'm just on a bad run of theaters not properly setting their equipment. It's a fucking, it's an epidemic. As I think I said uh, in that episode, the problem with theaters, ARA problem nowadays and for a while now, is that projectionist is not a position that's occupied by a human being anymore. No one is minding the mint. You know, it's just, it's just, I, I think, yeah, if, if, if there's something wrong, nothing is done about it. There's no human eyeballs. Yeah, basically, the only thing that they'll do is if it just won't, like, the movie won't play. Or like the sound just completely cuts out, they will call in someone from outside. That's the most they'll do. But yeah, there are no technicians on site, and that's fucking, that's a problem. That's bullshit, particularly given how expensive movie tickets can be these days. Not to mention concessions, although I don't buy a lot of concessions myself. I know the theatrical experience isn't what it is in terms of, you know, many people don't go out except for big event movies anymore. But I don't know, maybe if theater operators gave a fuck about the product, maybe that would help a little. Or maybe not. Maybe people just like watching content sludge on Netflix. Martin Scorsese certainly seems to think so. Yeah. Uh, Just to to wade into that uh, fresh bit of discourse. I, mean, I don't know how fresh it is anymore. I know. That well, it just it, it was the, it was freshly the, reheated. Yeah, uh, right, recently. The, the, I guess that's GQ what I meant. Profile. Yeah. No. I, I. It's. Yeah. Battle lines have been drawn, and I've. You know. You and I have consistently <laughs> maintained our stance on that particular culture war. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, I, I'm sure that the, that it's part projection and part just. Oh, it's a horror movie. You know. It's. It, yeah, it's got to be just, dark. Yeah, but not dark in like a visually intricate or way that's going to be pleasing to the eye. Yeah, no, it's theoretically you want to make stuff dark in your horror movie to sufficiently obscure something to make it spooky or suspenseful. But when you don't give enough light and it's too dark and too muddy, you are actively hampering fear. It's like, ah, oh, I just, I, I can't fucking see anything. I don't know what's going on. There's not even enough visual information here to tickle my fear receptors. Right. It's and just... I don't remember us complaining about that when we saw the original movie, which was no. not like Powell and Pressburger. You know, no, it was not, of not course a feast not. for the eyes. But I remember it being, you know, maybe we are just getting old or maybe post-COVID theaters have been cutting corners more and more. And that's why the uh, picture quality is suffering. It's probably a combination of factors, our own, you know, encroaching old age being one of them. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that unless I've got like a fucking frontal lobe tumor that I'm not aware of that, okay, maybe the, my visual acuity is declining my vision isn't as sharp as it was although according to my eye doctor it's on a pretty 
gentle downslope given my my age range and I've updated my fucking prescription recently. I don't think my ability to receive just quantities of light <laughs> is being impaired at this juncture in my life. It'd be kind of hard for me to believe that. But who knows? I mean, it's, it's all... I mean, yeah, the, the inexorable mark of time will come for all of our eyes eventually, much like St. <laughs> Lucy's eyes were, you know, husked out of her head in this very film. I'm on Wikipedia currently, and I can confirm that the mid-credits scene uses a scene that was cut from The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, so your suspicions were correct. Okay, but you see, I just thought it, wa it wasn't even a scene that was cut, it was just a scene that was in one of those movies. <laughs> and they just no, like, yeah, I, there oh, you apparently go. it's uh it's a scene that michael chavez just like had in his shed or something it's not even from one of the marquee conjuring movies it's from the one that he did you know two or three years ago or whatever jesus it was. christ what a mess so there's some business to do with the altar boy from the prologue now my recollection of the prologue is that after the nun turns the priest into the human torch, she traps the altar boy and, like, lifts him up by the throat, presses him up against the inside of the church doors, and snaps his neck. Does this sound familiar to you? I can't say that it does. I, I thought that if, if, if gun to my head, I would have said that the title drop happens over a shot of the burning priest. Well, that, that's definitely not the case. Okay. I'm almost positive that the nun kills the kid. And then there's some business after the two nuns, the human nuns, get to this particular town in France where they interact with a, a, another local nun from the cursed church where the priest went up in flames. That nun's like, oh yeah, the kid Jacques, his mother doesn't, want him talking about what happened but you could probably find him playing football you know soccer with the other neighborhood kids or whatever and it's like uh, wh what <laughs> <laughs> so is this gonna be like uh he's not really alive he's just a specter or some kind of revenant some tool of valak that's just kind of floating around. And then Irene interacts with this kid, but it's kind of like a fugue state sort of thing, you know, chasing him down alleys and he keeps disappearing. And right, I kept... Still, still kicking that little ball along. Right, well, and I, I kept expecting this kid to have, like, the demonic heel turn and help to bait her into a disadvantageous confrontation with the nun and the second part of that kind of happens because it's chasing him around that leads to that fucking magazine rack set piece but he just the kid the other shoe never drops uh -huh. on whether he's alive or dead and what his fucking deal is but i am i would put substantial money on it that at the very least we are led to believe that valak kills him at the end of the prologue. He is shoved up against the inside of those doors, and then we hear, like, a crunching noise. I got no crosstalk on this one. I don't remember <laughs> that at all. <laughs> one, one of us is being Mandela, and I don't. But, I, you know, I, I, I mean, your memory is sharper on this point. I, I think that that is just a, a very weird dangling thread that just bounced right off of me. This movie was not commanding my attention. Another, this isn't so much a dangling thread, it's just a, a weird incongruity. There's a scene in the trailer, and I don't know if you saw this one since you didn't see the magazine rack set piece, but where some of the girls in the school are peering through like a like a like an air vent, a heating vent or something, into another room, and they see in there, and there's a bunch of cockroaches skittering around on the floor, and uh. then... They see the nun in the far corner. Does this ring a bell at all? Mm, sort of. Okay, so they see the nun in the far corner, and then the one girl backs out of the vent, and another one asks her, like, you know, what's what's going on? What's in there? 
and she says something like she's just standing there and then gets interrupted by hands coming out and grabbing both sides of her head uh-huh. in the actual film first i was thinking like are they just not did they just cut that because it doesn't come up for a long time and then when it does come it's not the nun at all it's the reanimated corpse of like the headmistress uh-huh. yeah the, yeah the nun kills like halfway through the movie inside the chapel the headmistress just shows up and grabs this girl through the grate. And it's like, what? I know I wasn't fucking Mandela'd on that. It was <laughs> definitely the nun in the uh-huh. version in the trailer. Why make that change? And it feeds into a larger problem. And this is a problem that we've complained about in so many of these Conjuring Universe movies, namely that they're just riddled with these dopey secondary antagonists. Yes. Yeah, like, this one's all, uh, pretty much one and done. The dead headmistress, the zombie, back to life. But there's also possessed Frenchie, who's really not that imposing. And then one that, like, was conceptually fun but really didn't do anything for me in the final analysis. There is <laughs> there is a, a devil goat man that just sort of materializes in the upstairs of the school. Yeah, gonna be gonna be sent to live on the same farm that the crooked man was sent to. <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> because the whole thing is that the goat in the stained glass that produces the well of souls laser is supposed to be the devil. And so, if you follow the logic to its end, okay, the devil is there. The literal <laughs> devil. He's and he's in the form of this weird goat man who's yeah, just sort of charging at them. He's also hanging out, but you know, he, he's not trying to hog the spotlight. He doesn't want to <laughs> usurp. You know, he's not trying to rob the nun's big moment. Yeah. What a swell guy. And ultimately, it's weird, because... There's just not that much of the nun yeah. in the final analysis. And again, this is the same observation we've made about many of these films, but I'll, I'll say it again. It betrays a certain lack of confidence in the nun as the antagonist. Like, oh, mm-hmm. the nun's not scary enough to carry the weight of all of these set pieces on her own. So we got to have man-goat devil and possessed Frenchie and zombie headmistress. Well, you know, bringing in these backup monsters can have a certain utility. I mean, I'm thinking, what's a good example? The the Brendan Fraser mummy, the first one. In any movie where you have several protagonists, you know, a ragtag team of heroes, and you have to keep them all occupied, sometimes one monster isn't gonna cut the mustard you need to bring in some backup just so they all have something to tussle with Mm -hmm. classic example being the first mummy when anaxuna moon comes back for like a minute and a half just to (laughs) just to chase around rachel weiss and her brother because brendan fraser is duking it out with imhotep you know that's fine but when you're bringing in these tertiary monsters just to scare incidental characters you know like school children for example who are are not contributing anything then we know that you're not doing it to be economical or for logistical reasons you're just doing it to waste our fucking time i didn't even think that those girls were still at the school (laughs) because after the teacher character, incidentally, she's the little girl's mom. We didn't come out and say that, but so that's why there's the sort of tentative romance and also at the same time this sort of budding paternal thing. It's supposed to be like a we're putting together a new family here slowly yeah. but surely. Meet dad. Right, exactly. But after the teacher finds the headmistress in the chapel, dead, brains dashed out, there's literally a a wide shot outside of the school of just a row of cars and the children filing out one at a time and getting in the cars. Uh Uh-huh. So it's like, okay. I forgot about that. The the headmistress is dead. 
School's over. School's out for summer. School's out for summer. All of these girls are going home. The only reason that the one little girl, Sophie, is still there is because that's where her and her mom live, is at the school. So they're, I thought they were there alone with Maurice. And then, like, 25 minutes, at least, after the last time we've seen any other schoolgirls, suddenly they, they reappear. And I just, I, I did a double take. I'm like, wait a minute. What? It does feel, in the trailer, it feels like a scene from around the middle of the movie. And even in the finished product, it feels like a scene that belongs half an hour earlier. Because it's just, it comes along so late in the game that it is just a distraction. Yeah. The stakes have been raised. We sent the kids packing. <laughs> but apparently we didn't. Yeah. Apparently we sent like a portion of them packing and then just forgot about the other ones for half an hour. And then like, oh yeah, by the way, they're still here. The goat man's going to get them. Yeah, the devil, right? The, the goat man who is the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Come on. And you know what? Frankly, I also have beef with the fact that they felt the need to make Tysa Farmiga descended from a saint a, a real saint apparently that painting that's in the movie i'm still on wikipedia that painting that's in the movie of like her holding the eyeball platter it's a real uh, i don't know if it's renaissance or whatever i always sound like such a rube when i say like something is renaissance art or something <laughs> victorian you know right <laughs> yeah i use those terms much more broadly than any expert ever would but it's, it's a real painting a real martyr apparently. So yeah, she's she's bona fide. She's, those are pretty impressive credentials to introduce at the 11th hour. It's just, you know, why? I understand these fucking movies are Jesus-y enough, but... This is getting into, like, left-behind territory. Yeah, it, the whole thing with most of these movies up to this point is that all of these people, you know, maybe they have special abilities or whatever. Or they have, you know, a special link with God and all yeah, this they, stuff. They know how to pray real good and they love their kids, but they're all essentially normal folks. Yeah. Okay. Ed and Lorraine Warren are paranormal investigators and Lorraine has visions, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're not, second cousin to saint christopher or or whatever right it's just they're people of faith who have some special abilities and they go out and help people her having this consecrated blood this sainted lineage makes it feel more like a superhero movie and i have taken these movies to task for being a little bit cape shit and this movie i think veers further than ever into that territory because now they both have superpowers you get the sense that the nun and Irene should be flying around the tops of skyscrapers, punching each other, you know, that that's how they should resolve their differences next time. Enough with pretending that this is a horror movie, because it isn't. It's down to its very DNA, a very different animal. And after they find the eyes also, they're in this just little circular metal box and... They open it once, I think, right after they find it, but it spends the rest of its screen time closed, and then it just glows sometimes and does stuff. It might as well be the fucking Tesseract. You know, it might as well be a goddamn (laughs) Infinity Stone. I mean, what fucking difference does it make? It doesn't feel like a church artifact at all. The thing from the original Nun was dopey, but it's like, yeah, okay, it's the blood of Christ in this holy hand grenade of Antioch or whatever the fuck. Uh-huh. But it, it looks churchy. This just looks like nothing. It's just, yeah, it's just a superhero MacGuffin. I don't know. Very annoying. Well, and you know what? Just embrace it. I don't have an allergy to superhero movies. I name dropped Freddy vs. Jason a little while ago in a way that hinted at me not completely hating it. And I don't completely hate it. <laughs> And that movie ends with, you know, Freddy and Jason doing kung fu on each other. I think that if you if you just look in the mirror, take a good long look, and admit this is what I am, and you embrace it, then it, maybe the Nun 3 will be a trashy good time with, you know, Sister Irene and Valak, or if that's still what we're calling it, duking it out. 
but for the time being, it's having, you know, it's in denial. It's having an identity crisis. I never thought I would say this, but I kind of missed the demon wrestling. <laughs> there really wasn't any of that, even. There's, yeah, there's no, I precious guess little tussling. It's just the nun shows up and makes you levitate sometimes. But yeah, there there wasn't a lot of... If, if you're going to make these movies dopey, cape shit, climaxes, just, just brawling it out, you got to bring back the demon wrestling. And yeah, it's dumb, but it's what you've hung your hat on and what you've replaced it with, at least in this movie, is even less memorable. Well, and a little bit of honest-to-goodness choreography can go a long way, because I objected to the demon wrestling on principle in The Nun 1 and in any number of other Conjuring movies that we've covered, but all of them would have, you know, Malignant is proof positive of this. When Gabriel makes mincemeat of the whole police station... Uh, Incredible. It's, it's like it's like something out of an underworld movie. You know, it's like something out of so play. good. When he when he like whips the chair across the room at that guy and just wipes him out, it's like it's hilarious, you know. So it's just so good. It's not horror per se. It's like a horror action blade underworld thing, and it kicks ass. And if what we've called demon wrestling in all of these movies was half as well choreographed as that, then I wouldn't have made a peep. You know, I would have just yeah. sat there and munched my popcorn and enjoyed myself because I'm not a complete crank, you know, a complete <laughs> curmudgeon. But yeah, I mean, this time they don't need, they, they, they do stage it like it's more of an honest to goodness exorcism and there's fewer fisticuffs. And I wouldn't, I will not go so far as to say that I missed them. However, <laughs> there is a, there is a vacuity here that could be filled by some wwe theatrics and if that's the direction we're going to go then by all means apply yourself and make it a high effort malignant caliber dust up rather than the mud wrestling <laughs> that we got in the first <laughs> nun and in most of these other movies uh, yeah i'm gonna recommend only because i watched it fairly recently it's not a 10 out of 10 or anything like that, but it's it's pretty good. It's a, an Italian movie, horror movie from the late 80s called The Church. It's by the same director who did Stage Fright and Cemetery Man, both oh. of which I like a whole lot. I don't like this movie as much, but it's fresh in the memory. I watched it just a couple weeks ago. And as the title would imply, it is set in and around a haunted church. The prologue, which is probably the best part of the movie, is set in the Middle Ages, and you've got crusaders, holy men on horseback, committing atrocities and, you know, massacring a village because it has a, a whiff of witchcraft about it. And then a church is built on the site of that massacre in order to seal the evil, and the church, of course, is tainted by the evil of the massacre go you know at least that was my take on it it's exactly what i decried when we watched that movie the name of which escapes me not for the first time what was the movie that ended in the holy water well where witches were drowned um the devil's light uh, well that was that was the original title and then um oh god help me it got retitled by the time it got really uh pray for the devil p-r-e-y of course, <laughs> it's I, I, I decried that movie for not doing what the church actually does, which is, you know, in Pray for the Devil, they use this holy water that should be thoroughly desanctified. <laughs> they use it to win and kill the monster. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, the church is more up my alley, more cynical, and has its head on straight. The church itself, the titular structure, is a, a cover-up that is itself kind of an infernal thing because it was just pasted over this atrocity. So the actual bulk of the movie is set in the present day, which is to say the late 80s, in the church, people hallucinating, going missing, being murdered. And that's all well and good. The premise, though, is quite strong, and that's the main basis on which I'm recommending it. The execution is also, you know, I mean, it's 
it's Italian. You know, it's got some panache. It's, it's <laughs> got some colors in there. Got some larger than life performances. The Church, Michelle Soavi. I don't know how the name is pronounced, but a director who I rather like. Mm-hmm. It's the least of his movies that I've seen, but still worth watching. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I don't really have anything on the docket for a recommendation, frankly. We've done a billion of these uh, James Wan movies, a billion of these exorcism, churchy horror movies. I guess my last aside, I, I realize I made this sound, I made the church sound more like a counter-recommendation to a movie from like 10 or more episodes ago. The reason that it, I think, is a useful counter-recommendation in this context is because both The Nun 1 and 2 are set basically in one location. They're Both movies are set in a haunted church, not the same haunted church. And, and neither movie does that much with the setting. I think the first movie is more of a success. Second movie, not so much. But neither of them really have that much fun with what you can do in a setting like that. And I think that the, the church is an example to be studied in that regard. Anyway, please carry on. Yeah, well, I wasn't really building to all that much. Uh, you know, <laughs> in terms of recent entries in the podcast, you'd be better off just staying home and throwing on Pope's Exorcist. It's uh, on Netflix last time I checked. That's a lot more fun. Churchy exorcism horror movie thing. Yeah, if the, one, if the guy hadn't fucking died of cholera, I would watch a, uh, a him and Russell Crowe team-up movie. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> they're, that'd be they're... fun. They're cut from the same cloth, not to be overly precious. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just uh, watch watch one of the other exorcism fucking movies we've recommended in the past. You'd be better off. Or, yeah, watch The Church. Maybe I'll watch The Church. <laughs> but until next time, now that Valak has had a, a communion wine bath and gone back to hell for another short visit. <laughs> Yeah. I'm I'm Jim Smith. And I'm Matt Jaron Daisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. A quick note. Further research has revealed that the giant cross sight gag guy Matt remembers from the first film was Frenchie. So uh, mystery solved. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from The Nun 2 official trailer, uploaded by Warner Brothers Pictures. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, October 15th, and we will be discussing Saw 10, about which we're just absolutely thrilled. See you then.